Welcome to the Elite Formula Physio and Training Podcast with me, Bradley Skeynes. And me, Matthew Murray-Downing. This podcast is all things Formula One and sports performance, fitness, health, and injury. We will be discussing the physical and mental components of Formula One, the drivers, and every circuit race by race as the season goes on, broken up with insight and knowledge in how to train, recover, and rehab like an elite level athlete. And we'll even bring along some special guests for the ride. For more information, you can find us at Elite Formula PT on socials. Hello, and welcome back to the Elite Formula Physio and Training podcast. And after a week off in Formula One, we, we also took a week off. And so sorry to hear about everything that was happening in, in Emma. Um, fortunately I didn't make it out there, but I know a lot of my colleagues did and had to, to rush home and obviously it's been, been hard on, on the area there. So thoughts with everyone in Imola, just like F1, we are back this week. We're in Monaco and Matt, how are we? Yeah, good. Thanks mate. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. It was a big shock last week. Um, uh, yeah, you're right. It's almost like head down onto the next one now, which is, yeah, just trying to keep the focus for the, the next round. Obviously, an important race for everyone, uh, a tough race for everyone. But yeah, otherwise, all well, mate. Yeah, it should be super interesting because I think a lot of teams wanted to bring updates to Imola. I don't think they'll want to bring them to Monaco because, you know, you can't can't tell too much around here. So it might be Barcelona. We see, uh, we see those. So Monaco could certainly be an interesting race, but um, you did go racing at the weekend, though. Yeah, so we were away with the uh, British Superbike Championship with Ducati. So we were up at Donington Park, quite a physical racetrack for the bikers. Uh, good results for us, leading the championship coming out of the weekend, although that didn't wasn't a weekend without its challenges. We had a crash and a bike clutch blew in the second race. So we had two DNFs in uh, race two, which was... Uh, oh, wow. Uh, yeah, a bit of a bit of a tough blow to the team, particularly as we had a bike that was in the lead with two laps to go as it as the clutch went. So, yeah, a bit of a bitter one. But generally speaking, actually, the outcome was a was a good one for the weekend. And yeah, so we've got now I'm now off for a, the week, uh, similar this week, similar to yourself, and then away next week to Paul Ricard. Okay, nice. And uh, from the bike crashes, any any injuries? What what kind of happened there? With the yeah. We were quite lucky on the on, on the on the front there. So Glenn, one of the riders, uh, went down um, a few bumps and scrapes, but actually it was what we call a low side. So that the bike actually went down quite neatly, and he managed to lay it down in a, a relatively slow speed. So actually he came away from it with no issues whatsoever. Um, so we were quite lucky on that front. That being said, it's a very physical track, so we did have a little bit of a kind of medio epicon lofty, a bit of a bit of a golfer's elbow um but that was something we'd been managing all weekend but actually as a whole no we were quite lucky we came away from that accident without um, without any injuries brilliant a uh, controlled crash i'm sure um sure some team bosses wouldn't mind that in uh in formula one with some of the uh, costs associated with sticking it in the uh in the wall but uh and and we're at a race this weekend where cars often end up in the wall so Let's dive into Monaco. What do the drivers need to be aware of this weekend? What what we're we preparing for? Yeah, so Mon- Monaco is a really, really interesting track. I think it cops a lot of stick. Actually, I really like it as a race, and I think it's um, it, firstly, it's obviously it's a street circuit. There is absolutely no runoffs. It's one where the drivers are going to have to be on it constantly. There's an awful lot of barriers that mark the edge of the track, so you're definitely going to see a few cars on the wall at some point. Uh, it's a tight track, 13 turns, and it's only just over three kilometers long. Yeah, it's definitely a track where the drivers are going to have to stay focused. 
it's quite a few interesting turns that I think pose quite a few interesting challenges. So, for example, you've got turn eight, slow speed corner just before you go into the tunnel. Often a few crashes there, particularly when you're pushing through quali. You've also got T14, which is kind of before the, the chicane through the swimming pool, a really, really interesting corner. Heavy braking zone and trying to get that right. Last year, there was a few big crashes. The big, most notable one would have been Mick Schumacher's crash a few years back now where it split the car in two. So it's definitely one again. Yeah, yeah, for the drivers to kind of get right. And also, I find 17, 18, there's been a few instances in the past that people are clipping the wall. Was it Max that clipped the wall last yeah. year? Yeah. Um, so there's a few really interesting corners that puts a lot of pressure on the driver throughout the whole of the race. So it means that the qualifying session is obviously particularly important as generally speaking, it's someone in the first row, maybe the second row historically that has, that has won the race. So yeah, qualifying is absolutely essential this weekend. Yeah, it's hard to obviously overtake during the race, isn't it? I think they need something like a four second differential or something like that to to, to be able to impact there. But um, but yeah, no, it was actually um, Checo that ended up in the wall last year in uh, in, in qualifying, which was uh, yeah, yeah not yeah wasn't wasn't good for us because we were we were going quicker on our on our lap at the time the uh, the red flag came out. But yeah, it's a short course, isn't it? It's it's one of the the slowest courses. I mean, it has the lowest average speed, so there's, there's a lot of demand on. Uh, on the brakes as well and it's braking force that actually brings up our highest g-force in uh, in monaco that breaks down to turn one produces about four and a half 4.6 g's which you don't really get because there's no real sort of high speed corners for the for the neck actually on this one so it's, it's much less physically demanding for drivers but much much more mentally demanding and i think you'll you'll probably see a lot of performance coaches this time around you know enhancing their warm-ups with a few more mental games a few more uh reaction games a few more light games a few more little mental challenges just to just to try and get those those neurons fired up so they're they're ready to go for, for that concentration that reaction time and that coordination rather than okay i've got to be physically ready to tolerate these these high speed corners yeah absolutely and i think it's definitely an interesting one for from our point of view. and someone actually mentioned the week in the uh, this week just gone actually and we were talking about is also the the tunnel as well a visual perspective there's an element of actually generally monaco is a really you know hot race it's very bright sunshine um there's a tunnel involved so that that transition optically from from bright sunshine dark tunnel coming back out into bright sunshine as you then come down the hill for a heavy braking zone um monaco that's probably your only real opportunity of an overtake as well coming out of that tunnel so it's 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 a surefire place to see action um only benefit i guess you've got of that section of the track is you do have the runoff straight ahead so there's a little bit of room for error but yeah it's a super demanding track and from a mental concentration point of view i guess from a performance coach point of view actually you know making sure that the driver is optimized mentally is going to be really really key just to try and get as most as we can from those practice sessions in terms of getting the car set up right and then actually nailing qualifying because it's probably going to dictate how the race is going to go for you yeah sure and, and that's super interesting because we all we have talked on this podcast before about you know vision being one of the determining factors of the the, the very best drivers so if that's being thrown into into perspective and you know as they come out of the tunnel and get a glare of light and lose their sort of visual representation their marker of where they need to go then yeah they could definitely end up not going so uh not going so well 
yeah, no, it's, it's definitely important. We, we had the interesting one last year, um, particularly out through our kind of free pass and quality as we kind of moved into to kind of the afternoon sessions where the sun was a bit low and it's a real problem coming out of the tunnel down the hill. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough track and obviously a lot of pressure on the drivers. It's one that a lot of them want to win. There's definitely a lot of history with it. So I think, yeah, we're, we're sure fire to see some mistakes, but um, I think it will make the, the certain, the strategy would be interesting as well for a lot of qualities. Cause as you say, a lot of the drivers that perhaps uh, rely on that kind of later quality push lap, we're going to have to make sure they get it in early because as you say, I mean, last year was a great example with, with, with Max, right. In the sense of, you know, someone puts it in the wall and, and causes a red flag and you've got no opportunity to even put in a lap. Yeah, not the uh, not the first time for us, unfortunately. <laughs> but um, but yeah, and you mentioned heat as well. It's, it's been really hot here today. So I'm in Monaco already. It was 26, 27 degrees today. The sun was beaming down, so you're getting that that solar heating. And we do racing in that afternoon time. So if it stays like this, and and Monaco football last year can can sometimes throw any sort of weather at us for a for a short period of time but if it stays like this then it's it's going to be quite a warm humid race for for drivers monica there's there's not really any chance for cooling either Uh, most drivers cool down on a on a straight where they they have that that air coming through and with all these tight corners and slow speed corners then then they're not going to get much uh, much cooling either no, absolutely. Yeah, it's an interesting point, and you're right. Yeah, I think those heat management strategies and hydration strategies are still going to be really, really, really key during the weekend. Again, even more so with the fact that we're looking for that kind of mental concentration. So we can't really have afford to have them kind of losing huge amounts of body mass, um, particularly in those earlier rounds, free practice, quality sessions. Yeah, I guess we're just lucky that it's not as uh, as physical. So it's more heat demand over heat and physicality demand. Uh, some of the other tracks and i guess the the main physical component for most drivers is probably just the bump, bumpy nature of the track it is on a street there's road markings there's manhole covers all which can make it a little bit more slippery and, and a little bit more bumpy so yeah i wouldn't be surprised if you saw um uh, the backs come uh, come the end of sunday yeah one thing we saw last year i don't know how you found it in the f1 side of things bad as well was we saw Obviously, we see mistakes creeping all over the place, which is, you know, what one thing we have to minimise because it could cost you places. And often, as you're right, generally it's other teams will kind of counteract when you've made a mistake. And I mean, the pit lanes another interesting thing to talk about. It's a super tight pit lane. There's not a lot of room. Really, really tight for the teams to work in. So the other area I think is from a performance coach point of view is a lot of performance coaches also work alongside the the, the kind of pit crew. And actually, you know, it, it's a, it's a really tough environment to work in in Monaco. It, it's hot, not a lot of room, a lot of lot of room for errors and mistakes to happen again, which is an opportunity for teams to kind of make overtakes. So keeping them clean is going to be a real factor as well for both drivers and for pit crew. Yeah, it's uh, it's a really good point, and just finding that optimal setup within the garage for everyone to work optimally is is really important. And yeah, it's super interesting because even the hospitalities and driver rooms are you know a good five to ten minute walk to to where the the garages are as well. So decisions have to be made where you're going to warm up before sessions, and you know need a degree of flexibility from the drivers from the coaches to then step things up differently you know you might be warming up upstairs next to the tires before going down and, and, and getting in the car rather than warming up in, in, in your nice 
next room and, and just strolling out and, and getting in the car that way because actually we've got five ten minute walk through the crowd to to get to the garages yeah it was something that we found quite tricky last year was that the the, the f2 paddock is actually based at a, a car park about three quarters of a kilometer along from the track and the drivers are having to get into the cars um drive down to the entrance to the pit lane where they'd sit and wait so we were having to get there with with fans and whatnot where they're then sitting warming up to then be able to get onto the grid to then be able to get out of the cars to begin some cooling strategies before getting back into the car again and depending on time would would kind of dictate whether we had enough time to get them out of the car and do some cooling strategies or whether we just had to leave them in the car and use fans and whatnot um to manage so yeah it definitely poses some challenges being in that tire environment for all kind of um categories of racing yeah it's crazy and then and then when you think actually this is the race where you need the most concentration you've got all these different things throwing uh or potentially throwing a, a driver off or you know dampening down the effects of the preparation that we that we would have done with them yeah and i think it's, it's interesting you mentioned that cause i think that's the other thing we probably haven't mentioned enough is that actually it, being monaco like it's quite a distracting environment there's there's you know in terms of like the glitz and the glamour of f1 it's probably one of the races where it's very easy to be distracted you know a lot of sponsors there the crowd's super intimate they're everywhere so i think there's just a lot of things to kind of direct and take your attention away so yeah just trying to keep drivers focused eye on the prize can be a real challenge in itself yeah and and the race weekend schedule too so PR, marketing, media, all that sort of stuff is much busier because you're right, there's more partnerships, there's more meet and greets to, to do, there's more filming to do. It, you know, everyone wants to be at Monaco, so you know, you're trying to provide that to everybody, but you have to manage that in terms of elements of fatigue as well because you don't want your driver mentally fatigued getting into the car in, in this race because, you know, again, <laughs> they might end up in the wall. Yeah. And I guess that's where the interesting bit, I guess it was a performance coach role. We, I know we've touched upon it before a little bit, is kind of looking at that your driver's schedule and going, actually, you know, we know there's certain bits they can't get out of, but actually occasionally having that discussion, you know, particularly like yourself now with Max, you've been there a good few seasons now where you say, actually, you know, where do you, you know, you draw the line in terms of, right, actually, there's a bit too much in that day. That's going to really start creeping in where you have to kind of say, look, we need to either move that media or, or adjust when we're doing it to, to kind of make sure that, that you're right, he's got enough time to switch on it and, and kind of put the game face on. Yeah, for sure. You, you you have to ask the question, you know, what what can we reduce? What can we remove? You know, he needs a lunch here or a, a bit of a rest break here. Yeah, 100%. He's got to have that, that bit of recovery so that we are switched on and ready to go come the time that then they get in the car and, and particularly leading into, into Saturday and Sunday where we're it's all going to count. Yeah, absolutely. And again, probably one of the few races where we haven't got to consider the jet lag planning quite so much in the sense of one, the drivers have had a week off now and a lot of them live there anyway. So it's, uh... we, we, we just walk a few minutes from home, so we're good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's definitely a, a nice, uh, nice part of that. Uh, so yeah, no, that's, uh, that's all good. So yeah, Monaco, I mean, the biggest standout points is high, high concentration. There'll be more, mental preparation than, than the physical pre- uh, for Monaco, you know, high actual G-force the drivers are going to experience at around three and a half, being in around sort of Casino Square or the, or the Hotel Hairpin. But other than that, there's not not really much um, for them to, 
to tolerate physically. They might need a bit of heat tolerance if the sun is uh, is blaring out and cooling. But it's all about that concentration and delivering that single lap on on the Saturday, and then hopefully bringing it home on the Sunday. So we mentioned, you know, the bumpy nature of the track and and how that might impact the driver's lower back. We had our episode sort of introducing lower back pain and, you know, the causes of it and how we might approach it. So I thought if we could dive into a bit of an assessment now, Matt, of how we might look at lower back and lower back pain. And then on the next episode, we can think about our treatment and and rehabilitation. So how would you begin your your sort of lower back pain assessment? You know, these these are potential clients listening. Uh, What do they want to hear in terms of? I guess both face to face, but also via the app as well, because we do a lot of these assessments online now and, and take clients, take patients through the process on, on our app. Mm, yeah, absolutely. So it probably doesn't vary as much as people think, actually, between online and face to face. And then, says actually, we get so much information from everything else we do. So it probably runs to kind of first of all talk through how we split or break down our assessment a little bit. So um, the, the raw categories we start with, we kind of break your assessment down into kind of subjective and objective assessment. So subject being the information that you tell us. So generally a good starting point is for us to find out a little bit about your back pain. So that might be how long that you've had your back pain. The, the way that you describe your back pain as well can be really, really useful for us. So whether that's more of a dull pain that's there all of the time or a perhaps a sharper pain that's there on certain movements, which leads us quite nicely into perhaps some of the the kind of the, the the way that you experience your pain as well can be quite useful. So whether that's a bit more of an activity related pain or whether actually it seems to be a bit more vague than that. So we'll get a lot of information from understanding the kind of nature of your pain that you're experiencing. Um, from there, we might ask a little bit about your ags and your eases. Again, that can tell us a lot about your 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 pain. So things that aggravate your symptoms, make them worse or provoke those symptoms. And then when it comes to the eases, techniques that you may have found that provide you some relief, again, will give us a lot of information about the type of back pain that you've got. So for example, with a more muscular or mechanical back pain, we may see that some of your eases are related to use of heat or movement uh, and even pain relief. Whereas with uh, more of a neurological type of back pain we might see some relief from walking um, certain different types of anti-inflammatories and different movement patterns so again that will tell us an awful lot so the first thing we generally do is listen and just try and find out a little bit more about what that person's experience in terms of their back pain whether it's acute long-term etc once we've got through the subjective and we've found out a little bit more about the type of back pain um, that you've had, we might then delve a little bit into medical history as well. That's always really useful for us. So whether this is something that's new to you or whether it's something that you've had historically, as well as a little bit about your general health. Um, I think probably the way me and you work, Brad, similarly is that it, for us, it's really important that we find out about you holistically. So you know, a little bit about your general life. What does that look like? What do you do for work? What do you do for exercise? You know, um, what do your stress levels look like? What do your sleep levels look like? So we can kind of build a bit of a picture of what does your life look like and kind of the general ways that you might look after yourself. And then from there, sticking with kind of the lower back pain, we're then going to take a look a bit more objectively. So here we're going to look at um, the movements of your back. So again, as we, we touched upon a little bit last time, with active range of movement in particular, more mechanical back pain, we may be looking, this is very generalized, but looking to see whether some forward movements are provocative, whereas with a more neurological back pain, we may be looking at some, or some facet jointed stuff, some extension-based work that may be again more provocative, so we'll tell a lot from that. 
We generally try and assess the hip as well, joints above and below. So we may look at your thoracic spine as well as looking at your hip joint to try and clear everything above and below. And particularly when we're looking at the lower back, if we're face to face, for example, we may be able to even have a feel and a press around. Um, but again, we can do this over, when we're online. We can often get you to self-palpate and we'll get a good feel for, for kind of what's going on there. And then finally, often with my kind of uh, objective assessment there, we'll often look at some neurological tests. So we'll look to kind of assess the integrity of the nerves in terms of their sensation, their ability to generate muscle movements, as well as reflexes. We'll kind of look at that. So that's always where we generally finish up. Obviously, I should have mentioned at the beginning as well with your active range of movements, we generally as well try and make that a little bit more functional as well. So we may look at some more functional movements that you do on a day-to-day basis, whether that's getting up and sitting down, whether that's bending over to pick something up. Uh, etc so yeah that kind of runs a very generalized view of how i would kind of put together my subjective and objective kind of assessment of someone's back yeah for sure and i think you make the nice point that you know most of it can be done online via video as well you know they always say 80 percent of the information that we get comes from the subjective assessment so what a patient and a client tells us and then our objective assessment is kind of confirming the hypothesis that we've already built from from that subjective assessment. It is also in that subjective assessment where we can clear the you know the the bad stuff that might be going on, anything serious. You know, we have some very special, specific questions around neurological conditions or uh, serious stuff that might be going on in the back, which certain answers to those certain questions will lead us down a different route as to whether this person you know, needs uh, immediate care or a scan or, or whatever that might be. So 80% of our hypothesis is built from, from that subjective assessment. And then the objective assessment, most of that can be done online as well. So if you're looking at you know 90% of your objective assessment can be done online, you're looking at 90, 95% of the entire assessment and can be done online which is which is which is great and as you quite rightly said you, you know any of the hands-on palpation stuff can can be achieved um through through modifying that that online assessment as well so, so um so yeah that's good so yeah subjective assessment brilliant um looking at those those aggravating factors during uh, the objective assessment as well maybe just trying to find ways for which they can do those movements you know if they're painful maybe how can we do them without working on them as a as a treatment as as we'll come on to i think just a a couple of questions i might have added in there is and again we, we talked a little bit about this on the last podcast is delving into someone's beliefs and expectations you know so who have they seen before what have they been told what do you think is going on what do they think is going on really really important because if they're coming to you having seen x y and z and you know they're set on this being a, a, a problem, slip disc or ruptured disc within the within the back. Then telling them something else about the knowledge of that and being able to work it around and, and, and build around to them, you, you, you're probably not going to get very far. You can change in their mind, and then expectations are, are super super important. You know, what does that client, what does that patient think needs doing? You know, do they think you need to get your hands on or do you think they need to go under a machine or do they think they need to do a bit of exercise or rehab and that will help you to address and build a plan with them moving forwards. 
how long do they think it's going to take? If you don't discuss this on, on the first session, they, they might think they're going to be better in session two. And you're thinking, well, hang on, 12, 16 weeks down the line is, is where we're going to be better. And then just, just what are their goals and, and, and how we want to, to set out our plan to, to achieve that. It's interesting you mentioned delving in, into their lifestyle as well, because I always ask a, a bit of a cheeky question because I like to, to put it on that patient, put it on that client a bit, but I, I, I always ask, what do you do to keep yourself healthy? And because we know that pain and back pain has massive links to sedentary lifestyle. And if someone's more active, they get less pain. Uh, and, and sometimes that just makes them think, you know, okay, or well maybe I should be doing something, a bit of exercise to stay healthy. Maybe I wouldn't get this pain if, if not. And, you know, depending on the answer to that, you can always follow it up with, well, how can we help you to, to get healthier? Or how can we make you healthier? And, and stuff like that. So that, that's um, uh, a few little, uh, little bits I like to add to the subjective just to um, get that patient a little bit more involved in, in their own assessment. Absolutely, yeah. It's interesting as well. I think it's always really important to, to reflect on I think a couple of the reasons why one is that I think it's really important that we understand our clients because as we know back pain is hugely multifactorial and very rarely is it actually one factor in particular that's the cause and actually the, the most effective way of treating generally is by addressing a few different things yes from a physio we may give you some certain strength-based drills or some certain advice around medication or whatever it might be but actually you know Generally speaking, most things will have a very good, favorable natural history if we can address actually keeping stress low. Now you're sleeping, make sure you're generally keeping active. Actually, it's a generally a really good recipe for most things. So us understanding you as an individual is really important yeah, in terms of moving you forward. Yeah, for sure. And then, um, yeah, objective assessment can be kept nice and simple. We're looking for those things that hurt and we're looking to see if we can, if we can change that. Um, obviously, we rule out our red flag so that's the serious stuff and then we're looking for any tissue disruption that might require healing or or repair which is relevant to pain and then if there's nothing there then we're looking for those relevant impairments that that we might change and keep using the word relevant because there can be obviously a lot of red flag impairments in there as well you know if uh, someone has a bad squat or struggles to stand on one leg or restricted hip range of movement that doesn't necessarily mean that oh yes my tight hip flexor is the cause of my my lower back pain it's got to be relevant to that pain can you reproduce that pain can you change it um from, from there and then again i think probably the main focus of mine after i've looked at kind of range of movement is i'm, I'm very much a, a load capacity bias yeah biased physiotherapist and i will will go for a battery of um uh of, of strength tests if, uh, if they're not too painful to, to complete so i'll be looking at bridges single leg bridges single leg glute bridges hamstring bridges single leg squat from the chair you know can they plank can they side plank can they do some lumbar extensions to see where they are within the normative data that we have for for people i.e we should be able to do 25 single leg glute bridges. You'd be able to do 25 single leg hamstring bridges. If you can't achieve those those numbers, then, you know, are we weak in our posterior chain? And could this be a relevant factor to our lower back pain? 
yeah, absolutely. I'm very similar to you to Brad, exactly that. And again, you're right. It's it's just trying to you say put together a piece of the puzzle where we can look at someone and say, actually, you look fairly robust from a strength point of view, because if we're not meeting that normative data, then it, you're right. It's kind of indicated that we may struggle with some daily activities that may then start to present as a, as, as a pain. So yeah, no, super relevant and always really interesting. But yeah, I think, yeah, objectively, as you say, I think we've touched upon the fact actually a lot of it online is not a problem it's really actually quite straightforward to do and our assessment doesn't really change much actually at all and we get all the information we need to kind of put a plan together for someone that, that lead him in the right direction absolutely and simple is always best but i think um you know mentioning those couple of exercises there we'll post them with this pod and then uh, anybody listening so single leg glute bridge single leg hamstring bridge see if we can hit 25 of, of those and uh um, we'll put that up for, for anybody listening and particularly anybody listening with uh, with lower back pain as well. And we'll see uh, see where we can get to. Cool. Anything else to add on uh, lower back pain assessment, Emma? No, I think that's kind of a really nice kind of clear summary. And hopefully kind of what people took from that, that, that really we're looking to just get a general feel for the type of or the pain or the, the provocative symptoms that people are getting. Um, I think it's also about listening to that individual and our assessments are always different to each individual. And I guess some of our questioning will be guided by each individual, as you say, expectations and beliefs are a huge thing. And actually, we have to make sure that our role is make sure those you know, expectations are met or at least addressed. So, yeah, I think it's um, it'd be tailored to everyone. And that can always sound very generic when we're talking through the kind of framework that we have. But actually, it's very much tailored to everyone, which we'll probably delve into a little bit more when we get onto the treatment aspect, because I guess that's where we take all the information where we've gathered and we put that together in a, a kind of a bit more of an individualized plan. So I, I generally trust actually that a lot of people's objective assessment looks very similar. It's the treatment bit where we start getting into the nitty gritty of the specifics. But um, no, I think that was a nice summary. Yeah, no, that's perfect. So we will call it there. We have Monaco race week to enjoy. So we'll be back next week to review whatever goes on this weekend and to preview our back-to-back races we head to Barcelona and then of course we will complete our lower back uh, I guess mini series and, and look at some of the treatment and rehabilitation options that we have for that so thank you once again for listening thanks very much Matt thanks for listening everyone yeah thanks Brad and um, yeah you know where to find us follow us on socials at Elite Formula PT and please do uh, rate the podcast if you enjoyed it and we'll see you next week See you next week. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to the Elite Formula PT podcast with Bradley Skeynes and Matthew Murray Downing. You can follow us on socials at Elite Formula PT or sign up on the app at EliteFormulaPT.com. Please follow, subscribe, and if you enjoyed the podcast, why not leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now? Be sure to tune in for the next episode. And thank you for listening.